Hey, welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez, a music appreciation podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez, where we appreciate a couple of different albums every week. I'm Spike, and that's Mootloo, your your trusted co-host as we lead you on a path and a journey, a musical journey, if you will. Wow. I think you need some sound effects. You, I was hoping for like a... Uh, I would go... No, wrong sound effect. <laughs> no, also wrong. No, one. that's wrong. No. Well, that a might musical have been journey. How about this one? That's a, nice. That's yeah. nice. That's like a harp, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. And the the, <laughs> the crickets are still good. a musical journey. There we go. Ah, yeah, beautiful. Very nice. Hey, Moot. How's it going, man? Who would have thought that the um, that on in, within one week of the last time we did this podcast that one of the biggest movie stars in the world. <laughs> would get up on the stage at the Oscars and physically strike one of the other biggest stars in the world, unbeknownst. That person would have sat down afterwards, then later won an award at the Oscars, and here we are a week later, and it seems like the entire story is over. It is really a statement about 2022 that we can move through the entire news cycle and have it become annoying in less than seven days. I don't. We can't even. I would love to talk about it with you. It just seems like it's, it. It seems like everybody ruined it. Ruined just one of the most unbelievable, I think, moments in the history of television. And now it's just like sort of fucking annoying. Because I think it's what you're getting to is that everyone has had a take on this. I mean, yes. even people that I thought wouldn't have a take on it have had a take on. You know, they've had a take on it. So I. I just did you watch it in real time? I mean, no, I, no, I, I, I did you? I did. And oh, what was it like for it, it to was, happen? I've never been I'm so more jealous conv- of you. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like I, I'm still trying to like sort of retrace my thinking at that moment. I, I've never been more confused. Yes, watching something on television because it was sort of like the whole broadcast muted and then almost like paused for a second. And I'm like, wait, this is happening live, isn't it? <laughs> and then- Oh yeah, because they, they turned off the sound as it was going right. back and forth. Because you, you had to go to the Australian one or the Japanese one to right. hear Will Smith yelling, right? Or even to hear what Chris Rock was saying. Right, right. Uh, so in real time, it was harder to decipher whether or not this was a bit. At first, that's what I thought. And then I thought it was maybe a bit that kind of went off the rails. Uh, <laughs> but then when they cut to Will Smith, and even though he was muted, and you could tell he was angry and shouting at Chris Rock, then it was like, oh, wow. And then it, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the most uncomfortable, cringeworthy things I've ever seen on television. And so disheartening, because I love Will Smith. I love Chris Rock. I grew up watching both of them. Right, right. I mean, they're two of the, like I said, they're two of the biggest stars in the world. And and for people our age, like we sort of grew up with, like grew up with the rise of their star, right? Because yeah. we were we were young, like teenagers, early teenagers when Fresh Prince came out and, and all that kind of stuff. And even Chris Rock, the same, it's probably about the same age. It, I, I woke up to it. I went to bed like 10 o'clock and I woke up you know, and I, as I've mentioned on the pod, I get up early, get up at like four and I, I look at my text messages and all I had was a text from Elliot Shore Parks. And it was a, a text to a tweet from Stephen A. Smith saying, like all the tweet says was Will Smith, that was unacceptable. And I was like, hmm, what the fuck is this? 
and I'm laying on the floor stretching as I do every morning for my back. And I'm like, I look it up and it's as confusing as it was for you in real time <laughs> at like 4am as you're trying to put together the, like the pieces of it. And I just, I got up and I sat on the couch and I just watched the video over and over and over again. Like I wanted to wake up my wife to tell her what had happened because I was so blown away with it. And I was so jealous of everyone who got to live through the only good time for takes for this was the three that, hours after it happened. Yeah, that day, let's say yes. that day. Yeah. And let's be honest, this had a longer like shelf life. Right. Well, than a lot the, of things do. I mean, you know, yeah. it wasn't just 24 hours. I would say it was like more than 72 hours even. It, it was yeah, there but, for a while. But it got into, like, I don't want any serious takes on this. Like, I, I know there's, <laughs> there's serious, like, aspects of this. And clearly, like, Will Smith, like, needs to see somebody. And, but, but in my head, there was only one take. This was obviously unacceptable. And it was fucking crazy. And that's yeah. it. Like, yeah. it, it was just crazy to watch. And, you know, you don't want to, like, revel in somebody else's pain because there's a lot of people in pain on that stage, right? Like, Chris Rock yeah. has to deal with this his, the rest of his life. And Will Smith has to deal with it the rest of his life. Like, I, I understand. But, like, <laughs> that, that, just the fucking stunned the, look. The only thing, the only stunned look that I can remember on television that was similar to Chris Rock's look after he got hit was Mike, the look on Mike Myers's face as Kanye West right. was doing the George Bush right, Katrina that. thing. But this you, tops that though. This is beyond that, I would say. Well, in terms of in, insanity of what happened, totally right. tops it. If you haven't watched that video of Mike Myers in a while, you should watch it because <laughs> he's... He, he knows there's nothing he can do. And you can see in his eyes, he's just the panic of, because it, what you don't remember with the Kanye thing is he goes on for a while off script before the George Bush doesn't care about black people thing, which is what everybody remembers. Right. He's off script for a while. And then right afterwards, they just fucking cut to Chris Tucker, who looks like he just saw a dead body. Like <laughs> his eyes are like, they're like, just fucking talk, Chris. It was amazing. Anyway. Yeah, it's same over. cringeworthy awkwardness. Yes. The other thing I'll say is like, I've always been a fan of Jada Pinkett Smith too. Such a kind of like unique and versatile kind of artist. And the one thing I'll say is the crazy thing about this, if you just take it back to like the root of what happened, mm -hmm. I seriously doubt that if Chris Rock knew she had alopecia, like he would have made that joke. I mean, I for, disagree. Actually, you don't you don't think because no. I and I'm not even and then I heard like maybe this was something that was put together with the Academy writers. I just don't think. I don't think he thought it was, he wasn't thinking of it that way. He just thought it was like, that's what you do at the Oscars. You know, you, these big celebrities are up there and there is always this element of roasting. But I do wonder, I don't know if he's spoken about it yet, but I do wonder if he'd known that if he would have gone there. Because there's 15 other jokes he could have made at their expense that probably yeah. wouldn't have evoked this response, you know? Yeah, but I, I don't think in any way, like, if you go back to some of the things that, uh, who's the British guy from The Office that hosted? Oh, Ricky Gervais. Yeah. yeah, like, he roasted people pretty good, you know? I, yeah. I, I don't, like, I, I, I don't want to get into how serious a condition is, which, by the way, 
I had for, uh, I would say a year into the pandemic. If you go back and look at Ricky videos, I had a patch of hair in my neck, in my beard that stopped growing. That was about really? the size of uh, two golf balls that was right here. And uh, like, it was the first time that I had even heard about uh, the condition at all, because it doesn't, ju it doesn't just happen on your head. Like it can, can happen, happen anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. And it was the fucking weirdest thing. Cause you see my hair like is, is pretty like uniform on my face. And it was like completely smooth on my neck for over a year, year and a half. It was, it's a fucking wild, uh, wild thing to happen to you. But I, I don't know. I mean, he might not have, I don't know, but. Because but, it's a tough condition for people who really, I know a few people who have it. And if you have it, you know, long-term, it really affects your life in a dramatic way. So I just feel like, I know Chris Rock is always, is a great comedian, a brilliant comedian who knows how to push the envelope. But I just wonder, I, I feel like he didn't know that. Uh, that's, I'm gonna, I mean, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt because I just wonder, you know, if there was a time machine. Like, again, he's so good. He could have made 15 other jokes at their expense that they probably would have just laughed off, you know? But the weird thing was when they cut to Will Smith, he was laughing originally. He was laughing. He was definitely laughing. It was, yeah. I was listening to a different podcast and, uh, <laughs> see, here were, we are talking about it. We can't, yeah. I, I knew we were going to get into this. I do. They were, no they way. were talking about it. Obviously like the story of Will Smith and Jada Pinkett over the last few years has been yeah. very public and embarrassing for Will Smith. And on the podcast I was listening to, there's two women talking about it. They were like, he took out, and they were saying that Will Smith took out his anger on Jada on Chris Rock. Right. And like, like it was years of being like, um, you know, embarrassed publicly. And I you like, there are a million different ways that you could psychoanalyze what he did, but he clearly laughed and then noticed that right. she was not thinking it was funny. And, and it was like a moment of panic because whether you think what Chris Rock did was right or not, like the solution is never to punch somebody in the face. Like even if no. it's an inappropriate no. joke or slap them or whatever the fuck it was, like he clearly made a decision that like he broke, you know? And yeah. it was, uh, so I- It was her reaction that yes. sort of triggered him into that. And he got handed to Chris Rock, classic. I mean, he was clearly flustered by this, but what a pro. He kind of composed himself. He got through it. Yeah. And the other disappointing part of it was that it sort of overshadowed a big moment for Philly. You know, Questlove winning for, uh, yeah. you know, and his team winning for best documentary. It was a big Philly night. It should have been a big Philly night. No one's talking about that. Will Smith wins an Oscar, you know. Just let's say this didn't happen, right? The story would have been Philly in a lot of ways. It would have been Will Smith wins an Oscar. Questlove wins an Oscar. You had Jill Scott uh, presenting. You know, you had... Adam Blackstone playing in the band, who's an amazing musician, yeah. just gets all those pro, high-profile gigs. Derek Hodge, I mean, there was a lot. Bradley Cooper is a Philly guy. I mean, you had a lot of Philly in that room, and that's no one's even talking about that. That will never even. It was. I didn't even hear that mentioned anywhere. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It and we didn't even get like and the conversation about what actually happened turned serious very quickly, and it was unfortunate because I wanted to back in the day you would get a meme that would be fun for years all i need to do is point to crying jordan which right. was the king meme 
for so long. Still is. Is there anything that tops that? I don't but think people so. People don't use it like they use it. Like it used to be this fun thing where everyone would laugh as they used crying Jordan in the most, in the best time. And now I just don't even know, like I see the memes with the, cause the real meme is the one like right after the slap where Chris Rock's face is back like this and Will Smith has just followed through and people are putting like text underneath one of them. Right, I've you seen know? a lot of those. <laughs> but I don't even like think it's funny anymore. I got like burned yeah. on it so quickly. It's a bummer. It was too uncomfortable and I, I, here's a question. Yeah. Will Will Smith's I guess will the perception of him ever recover from this because I mean for this I think part of what was shocking was that it was him that it was Will Smith that did this. So know? so the uh, in that same pod that I heard they they said that the the way for him to recover for it at some point because he will have to would be to do a role that is incredibly self-aware sort of the way that Nick Cage has turned his career yes. by like <laughs> going from being perceived as a lunatic to sort of leaning into being a lunatic to being like like sort of uh, praised as an amazing actor because of his self-awareness of it i think the i think what what our our our, uh, we're a, we have a, sh I was going to say forgiving, forget about forgiving. We have a very short attention span in this, um, world. And I think a lot of times people are looking for some people to forgive. I think if he goes and does an amazing role at some point, I think like people will look at it as a redemption story rather quickly. Um, yeah. I just hope for his fucking sake, he like gets whatever is in his head, like, you know, addressed because like that to, to, to have that much sort of like anger and like that loss of control for somebody who you perceive as being very in control all of the time. Right. I get, it's a window into the fact that money does not solve, solve some problems, but it creates others and, uh, and, and doesn't solve all of them. And that anybody regardless of their situation financially or fame in life could be dealing with something way bigger than you could ever perceive. Like just think about how big, what a different world must be going through his brain to think about doing that at the Oscars, right? Of all the moments in time, right. on his potentially the biggest night of his career. Right, ended up being the biggest night of his career, you know? Yeah, yeah, but not in the right way. I mean, no. he sort of undermined his own moment too, alongside yeah. Everyone else. I mean, uh, what a strange, what a strange thing. I mean, and you're right. And it, I'm not hearing about it now as much. A week later, it's yeah. sort of almost going by the wayside. And we're late. We're late to it. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure Saturday Night Live was like, fuck. Well, I mean, I don't know if anybody watches that show anymore. But if it happens on Sunday night, they're not even going to get to it until oh, Saturday. Yeah. Six you days know? is like a. It's like a millennium. Yeah. So anyway, we're a music podcast. <laughs> uh so we do, we do, uh, our, our intro music is from Marion Hill, Philly's own Marion Hill. Speaking of Philly, it is called, I should let you know, you can't get it anywhere, but here we do two albums, every podcast. One is from us, one of our favorites, and one is a lit listener favorite. If you'd like to get your, um, favorite, one of your favorite albums on the pod, leave it in the Apple podcast reviews, leave us five stars and then leave it in the reviews and then grip it, rip it and move on. The two albums today, and I, I mentioned Amutlu before we started 
um, recording that I, I had a, a very embarrassing admission to make as we do the two <laughs> albums is my choice this week was Foo Fighters self-titled debut from 95. And the listener choice is 2013's Worm Food from the band uh, Jamaican Queens from Apple Podcast user DJud32. He says two albums, well, he or she says two album suggestion. Love the show. Would love if you did Worm Food or Downers by Jamaican Queens. And I picked Worm Food because it was their debut. The reason we're doing Foo Fighters is the end of the last pod or the beginning of the last pod had we, we recorded right after a couple of days after Taylor Hawkins passed away. And I said, Hey, you know what? We've never done Foo Fighters. The one that I remember best, you know, that, that mean that, that, that sticks the most in my mind is the debut. Let's do the debut. Never thinking about the fact that Taylor Hawkins wasn't even on the debut Foo Fighters record. Oh, really? Is that the case? Yes. Oh. And not wait, not only. And I, I started toward the okay. end of the week because so I don't do my prep for the albums until the end of the week. Like usually Friday or Saturday, I'll lean in and do the prep. And I think it was maybe Thursday. I was thinking like, wait a minute, weren't the Sunny Day Real Estate guys part of Foo Fighters at the beginning? Like it had been so long since I thought about it. And then when I sat down to actually do it, I was like, yep, it was the Sunny Day Real Estate guys. And not only that, they weren't even on the first album the only person that recorded the first album was dave Grohl. he so, plays the drums correct he plays everything we'll, we'll get yeah. to that and the drumming is phenomenal so i was you know yeah yeah so <laughs> so so oh, rest in peace taylor hawkins and by the way taylor hawkins wasn't even on the second record he was on the third record there's nothing left to lose so the color and the shape which had everlong on it and yeah. you know my hero that that is <laughs> not Taylor Hawkins either. But he but but over time, over a quarter yes. century, he became such an, an important part of that band. And, Absolutely. And just you know. like we were talking about last week, someone who was revered in the world of music and just so well liked. Like you know, again, even people that are nowhere near the rock genre, you know, respected and liked Taylor Hawkins. He's just one of those guys, you know? Yeah, I just didn't want I thought about it and I'm like, well, it's fucking Friday. And am I really going to text Mutlu and tell him to switch Foo Fighters records? And by the way, this is a great Foo Fighters record. Yeah. And we are talking about an album from Taylor Hawkins' band. And obviously, like, he became, he and Dave Grohl became the faces of Foo Fighters. And the fact, it is a testament to Taylor Hawkins that he became a face of a band that he had nothing to do with for the first two records, you know? And I, I think he didn't even record the third record. I think he was just part of the album cycle. I can't even remember what it was, but but the fact that he became the face of the band and there were the outpouring, you know, when people die, there's always an outpouring of love, but the outpouring of love for Taylor Hawkins seemed um, particularly intense for the people that knew and loved him. You know, I don't know if you heard Perry Farrell and his wife, Perry Farrell was really close with Taylor Hawkins and they shared a voicemail that he left for them right before he passed away. And I think it was only a day or two before he oh, wow. did because he planned to see them at that concert and they shared the, the, the voicemail. And the voicemail was something to the effect of like, you two take care of each other, I'll take care of me or something like that. Wow. Like love each other, I'll love me or something like that. And it just like, 
I almost want to like cry thinking about it. He just seemed like such a, a genuine, wonderful person and an incredible musician. So I apologize that he does not play on this record, but we will talk about this record in and of itself, you know, uh, but, but that is my mistake. And I just didn't even, we were recording when we did it and I just didn't even think of it. So I, I, rather than make up some weird excuse as to why I did this, I figured I would just be honest. And maybe down the road, we'll do one of the later, uh, we'll Foo one. records that he's, that he is featured yeah. on. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, we did the listener record first last time, right? So why right. don't we do Foo Fighters first Sounds this good. time rather than fi- flipping a fake internet coin as I forgot to bring. It's always it. the same anyway. Yeah, it's always heads anyway, except for last time when it was tails. So I picked uh, Foo Fighters. You know, were you a, we, we've talked about your, your French exchange student experience in yeah, the 90s. What, I was just about to say this is one of the records. I was a an enormous Nirvana, like I was a huge grunge person. I went from, I was a huge 80s hair band person. And then I turned into a metal person. And then I turned into a hip hop and grunge person. And I was an enormous Nirvana fan. And I was not, I was like on the Nirvana versus Pearl Jam side. I was very, very, very pro Nirvana. And even in retrospect, even though I appreciate Pearl Jam's career, I don't like them very much. And Nirvana always spoke to me in a different way. I was wondering what part of that, that divide, if one you came from at all. I was a fan of both bands. Actually, mm-hmm. my favorite band from that era was Alice in Chains. So okay, we should do one of those. Yeah, we definitely should. And yeah. uh, you know, I, I think they're both iconic bands, both immensely influential. I think from a pure songwriting standpoint, Kurt Cobain just just beyond grunge, beyond mm-hmm. even rock music, is just an extraordinary was an extraordinary songwriter. And it's interesting when you listen to this record how you hear the thread of like some of that influence on Dave Grohl. But there is something transcendent about his songs because I've heard them in other contexts. Like I remember uh, Charlie Hunter, who's like a jazz guitarist, covered one of his songs. And it was just so good because the melody and the construction of the song is so undeniable. So I think from a song standpoint, I would say I was always partial to Nirvana. And... I'm not sure that there's another band in that time that like moved the needle culturally in the way that they did. I mean, they were sort of no. the first shot, you know, they that uh, smells like teen spirit, that video. I feel like they were the the catalyst for the whole thing. I don't remember, obviously I wasn't around for the Beatles, but I, I just, the, the, the sort of, the sort of like monoculture moment, maybe one of the last ones ever where everyone was entranced by this, like entranced by the same musical thing, you know, that, and, and that it was, that Smells Like Teen Spirit was written in a way that could appeal to regular non-rock people because of its pop sensibility, but also appeal to people who loved heavy rock music because of it, the noisiness of it. And then like the, and then the added texture of it being sort of like counterculture in its messaging and the band's attitude, which was so nineties, you know, because uh, I, I just I recently read the Chuck Klosterman book, the nineties and he talks about grunge, but he talks about the fact that it was 
it was like the last rock stars that actively like did not want fame. That was part of the ethos is that being famous was not, you weren't supposed to like that. And that something being popular was not good anymore. Whereas now it doesn't, it's not really looked at the same way. So it just, it had sort of everything. And, uh, it does feel like one of the last moments where everyone at once was like, wow, you know, where it hit everyone like a ton of bricks at once. Yeah. And that's the, the point you made about not wanting to be famous about rebelling against that, that sort of, uh, perception of a band when you're right. No, <laughs> that's, that's the, that's a thing of the past. No one seems to care about that anymore. No, it's very nineties and very nineties. Yeah. I think it's why those bands, well, maybe Pearl Jam in particular, but why they like Neil Young so much because I think mm -hmm. that was always sort of his attitude as yeah. well. And if you listen to some of his noisier records, his heavier records, you can hear the the thread just as far as like distortion and sure sort of wall of sound distortion. That I mean, I I love Neil Young, so uh, I just was always blown away by his ability to go between these really sweet, beautiful sort of acoustic folk rock songs and then just this bone crushing mm -hmm. sort of loud rock. And these bands all had that too, because yep. that's actually what Nirvana had. Although Nirvana, their template was closer to the Pixies when you, when you really mm -hmm. listen, sort of the quiet, loud, quiet thing. And you hear that on this record. I mean, this yeah. record was a trip to listen to because it's, it's immediately after Nirvana and you just kind of hear yep. the, the connection to that music. Well, it, it sticks in a place for me where I remember two albums post Nirvana very specifically. And one was, which uh, a former Carl Andrew Record Club album was, was uh, Holes Live Through This, which came out like the week after Kurt Cobain died. I remember this album and I remember being in a place where I was sort of desperate for music that was connected to Nirvana. Like when Kurt Cobain died, it, the two deaths that I remember so specifically that really hit me were Kurt Cobain's and Shannon Hoon's. And we, uh, Blind Melon, we, we talked about as well. Shannon Hoon died after Kurt Cobain did, but I, I guess I was just sort of desperate for a connection to it. And without the internet, without being able to find music as easily, like now, if one of my favorite bands, if somebody stopped making music, the internet would feed me, Spotify would feed me music that sounded similar, you know, and there would yeah. be immediate responses to it. And Live Through This was an immediate response, but this one, you know, a year later or whatever came out and it was another response. And I, Dave Grohl, obviously the, the drummer from Nirvana had, had written most of these songs while he was in Nirvana hmm. and while he was on tour with Nirvana. And as the, the story goes, just never shared them with Kurt because he was intimidated, I guess, by Kurt. That's interesting. Uh, I didn't know that. So he was quietly doing this behind right. the scenes. Yeah, had he all played the, it for anyone? Like, or was this something totally just like that he sort of bottled up until the time was right? So what he would do was when he was on tour, with Nirvana, he would sort of book studio time to book, to record demos and record them on his own. But I don't think 
that he ever shared these with anybody. And when I say intimidated, I don't mean like physically or mentally intimidated. I think he was somebody who was in the band with somebody who was so enormous from a songwriting and cultural perspective that the idea, and he wasn't an original member of the band, you know, he wasn't Chris Novoselic, so he couldn't walk up and say, hey, I wrote, and, and Kurt Cobain seemed like a hard person to know you know, in that yeah. way. And I don't think Dave Grohl knew him in that way or felt ever felt comfortable. So sharing the music that he wrote was not something that he felt comfortable doing. So all but a few of the songs he had written while he was on tour with, uh, with Nirvana, which is crazy. So he, real quick, because we've, we've talked a lot about it. He, um, after Kurt Cobain died, he went into, not hiding, but he disappeared for a while. And then he wanted to do this project. So he went with a, a friend of a childhood friend of his, a guy named Barrett Jones, who owns studios now in Seattle called Laundry Room Studios. And he approached him about recording the album, recorded the entire album. I think there's one guitar part on one song that Dave Grohl didn't record uh, on his own, wrote all the songs himself, recorded all the songs himself, sings, plays guitar, plays drums and all of it, and did it all in five days. So this is essentially like a one-man yeah. record. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. And then after, you know, he, so, and then the reason he called it Foo Fighters and Foo Fighters is what, I guess in World War II, they would call unidentified flying objects as they were called Foo Fighters is what the military would call them. The reason he didn't call it Dave Grohl and the reason he made it sound like a band is that his plan was to distribute the demo without any knowledge that it was him and have it be perceived as though it was a band and not just him. And it uh, he got signed by Capitol and then he had a tour. So he ended up getting, a, I can't believe we've never done a Sunny Day real estate album, which I, I don't think we've done. One of the original, especially with as much emo as we've done, one of the original sort of dreary emo bands is Sunny Day real estate. took the bass player, Nate Mandel, who's still in the band and William Goldsmith, who was the drummer and they joined the band. And then Pat Smear, who, and who was a, a touring guitar player, as everyone knows, is sort of like the what me worry doesn't wear shoes guy, uh, <laughs> who ended up in Nirvana toward the end. And everybody's like, who is that guy? But he, he had a very he, jovial presence. Like he didn't seem like, he's like, what is the, it's so funny you mentioned that. Cause I remember watching like they're unplugged. Yeah. Like, who is that guy? He's like too happy to be in the room. Yep, like yep. he's too he, peppy and up. <laughs> so he ended up being in Foo Fighters, but none of them were on the record. And Capital ended up getting the record and then uh, signing him. And as I mentioned, Taylor Hawkins didn't come, didn't join the band until right after Color and the Shape came out. And then the first one he played on was There's Nothing Left to Lose. And I thought there was a... Um, an interesting quote from Barrett Jones about the, in, the initial recording of the initial album. Um, he said, Dave's very good at not getting too far ahead of himself. He's very humble about that sort of stuff. He thought it would be a demo and he'd hand it out to some friends. I knew that the song, songs were amazing, that even if he wasn't in Nirvana, people would want to hear them. But the fact that he was in Nirvana pretty much to me guaranteed it. And I think one of the things that I didn't remember <laughs> And I might've even said something to the contrary when we talked about it in the last pod, 
is how much so much of this album reminds you of Nirvana, you yeah. know, like, and it, oh, yeah. it's, it's not the entire record, but the, there are two specifically that reminded me of Nirvana. And one is Alone and Easy Target. Which, which I think was one of the songs that he recorded at, uh, after Kurt Cobain died. I had the, wrist, the, the list of it somewhere here. Um, oh no, it, it wasn't. This is a call. I'll stick around in ecstatic. The, just the, the, an incredibly Nirvana-like chorus on Alone and Easy Target that you could even imagine Kurt Cobain singing it. And then the other one is Weenie Beanie, which... Reminds you more <laughs> of one of like the the noisier Nirvana tracks that would be in the middle of the record where it would like almost like territorial pissings or something where you wouldn't really, it was a, a step away from the, the regular verse, chorus, verse uh, thing about Nirvana, which it was those two songs specifically that were like, fuck, I forgot how much this sounded like Nirvana. Yeah, and I'll stick around. I think you mentioned that yeah. one. There's a thing that Kurt Cobain did extraordinarily well that Dave Grohl also does, or at least does here. I think I feel like his writing has evolved a bit from mm-hmm. from this, or it's changed. Oh, for sure. It's gone in different directions. Uh, because I think of a song like was it uh, "Learn to Fly," a song like that mm-hmm. is very different. It's removed from this uh, mm-hmm. vibe-wise, stylistically, you know. But here he was definitely still tethered to that style of songwriting, and in the best way, that repetitive line thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know you. I don't know, don't know you, you anything. anything. Like that yep. kind of thing. Like you hear Kurt Cobain being channeled through that. Uh, Good grief has a chorus like that. Yeah, uh, that's a a great device. I mean, device in the best way possible because there are certain things in pop songwriting that just work, or certain work for certain writers. And that repetitive line thing, delivered with that sort of edge to it, it's just, it, all, it just always works. It works for uh, Kurt Cobain. It works every time Dave Grohl does it here. And uh, you know, it's interesting. I, it's so I'm tripping over the fact that he never played any of this for Kurt Cobain. I, I can't no. get past that. Uh, and in fact, "I'll Stick Around" is sort of like a "fuck you" to Courtney Love. Like the I remember uh, when the song came out, I thought it was directed as a a frustrated goodbye to Kurt Cobain, you know? Um, because it, when you when you read the lyrics, you can say, I thought I knew what it, all it took to bother you. Every, set, every word I said was true that you'll see. How could it, I be, I'm the only one who sees your rehearsed insanity. I still refuse all the methods you have abused. It's all right if you're confused, let me be. Um, and then like at the end, I'll stick around and learn all that came from it is a, and I don't know you anything, I thought was a message to Cobain, sort of a, you know, an angry for killing yourself sort of thing, but it wasn't, and he admitted it later. It was, 
Courtney Love hates him. She's the one that said, you know, Kurt never liked him. Kurt was going to fire him, yada, yada, yada. Is that still the case after all this time? There's still that? Yeah, yeah, I don't think they've ever sort of like like made up or anything if I forget it. And then he admitted, I don't remember, I don't, maybe it was on Stern at some point. He admitted that this song was about her and he didn't like her. And there's even a couple of moments in here where like you could, if you wanted to, see that he's saying that she had something to do with his death, which I don't think that he was saying in a conspiratorial way, but more in a, you you helped cause the chaos and didn't help fix what was wrong. The sort him. of psychological, emotional mm-hmm. turmoil that she- Right. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's heavy. Is that also, see, I'm trying to remember what the conversations were around this record. That I don't remember. I just kind of remember the music. Yeah, I don't I don't remember it initially being about her, but remember media was so different at the time is that it could have existed and I just didn't read anything about it, you know? And then, and then like there's so many great songs on it. We we you know, uh this is a call which is the first single and just like an amazing introduction to the album. But the other song that I wanted to mention was cuz I the first half I think is more memorable than the second half even though the second half is good, but for all the cows is a another another song to me that is a great song but is so 90s in its messaging because it is sort of like an anti-consumerism um you know with the cows being you know he uses cows instead of sheep in that way but reminds me of a uh, a tool song called hooker with a penis which is basically like a, a fuck you to the fans that told them that they sold out um, what is the, the line? Um, I met a boy wearing dope, da, 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 uh, something like, like, like I sold out and you, you bought it all or something like that is, is in the, the, the tool song. I'll look at the lyrics, but for all the cows, it presents as a, like a, a light, fluffy sort of, you know, ballady song the same way that big me is. But I think messaging is incredibly nineties. That was totally a standout. I had that one here too. Yeah. Just sort of a commentary on materialism and maybe celebrity yeah. culture, but also there's a line, you know, that that he repeats. He says, "My kind is all run out." The thing that you're talking about earlier, where they didn't like celebrity, they didn't want to be yeah. celebrities, kind of like sending the message that we don't fit in this thing, in this yeah. sort of pop music thing. Well, that's not us. We don't. We're not part of that. And that's and it's ironic because. <laughs> Dave Grohl has be, has now been so embraced by the pop music world. He's very much a part of it in the coolest way possible. I mean, he's still rock and roll, you know, yep. but he is embraced in the mainstream. So it's interesting to see someone's arc that his attitude is probably closer to Kurt Cobain's early on, like that he didn't, didn't necessarily want that, you know. But I think that there was, if there was one thing that the Big Me video did that showed that a, 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 a clear window into the difference between Dave Grohl and what Nirvana was, is there was a, a lightheartedness and a silliness to that video that there's just no way you could have imagined Nirvana doing. Never, and the, never, no. The Nirvana v- version of that was the In Bloom you know, video where it looked like the Ed Sullivan show, but that was a, that was In Bloom, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but that was, 
there was still a statement about something. It was still like mocking the, you know, like Cobain almost seemed obsessed with mocking the larger part of the audience and his discomfort with the the fame that he had. Whereas like, the, there's no way that you can do a video like Big Me with a big goofy grin on his face and, and whatever, where you can't do that and not be a different person and have a different approach than what Cobain did, you know, with Nirvana. Yeah, it's interesting. Has there been any band recently that's embodied that sort of attitude? Which one? Like yeah. just the one of like, we don't like celebrity, we don't want fame. R- I rebelling think he- against that sort of that sort of world of that's I think so prevalent now. I think feel like social media is like amplified it even more. I'm just trying to think if there's a band that still has that ethos and I can't really think of one. Well, I think you could go to the, the extreme ends of any, of any genre where like you could go to the extreme ends of hip hop or metal or something like that and find some of that ethos. But I think that the biggest difference is that (laughs) the audience does not. And I think maybe this is a, I would say that this is a good thing. The audience no longer conflates, or most most of the of a music audience no longer conflates popularity with a lack of artistic integrity. Right. It's you a know? good thing, actually. It's a good thing. For sure. I mean, you can see the way that they treat pop music. Pop music is treated with a, a praise that it never was before. You know, yeah. like there there's no way, and I don't like Taylor Swift, really very much at all, but like, there's no way that somebody as popular as Taylor Swift or even as popular as Justin Bieber would receive the sort of like critical, even if critics don't like everything that they do, they talk about it in a way that is not, hey, this is just consumerism, you know, 101. This is just a commercial as a song. They don't treat it that way anymore. So I don't know that a band could reach a critical mass with that messaging, because I don't think that messaging resonates with people that much anymore. Yeah, exactly. I don't think a band with that sort of approach or that sort of vision of how they want to present themselves could hit the mainstream anymore. But these guys did. Right. That's the thing. Like you're saying, like Kurt Cobain was mocking the mainstream as he was like one of the biggest stars in the world. That was the irony of him. That's what made him so compelling is that the more popular he became, the more he visibly hated it. Yes. Yeah. And it's and, probably and, part of what drove him to despair to the extent that, you know, that the, the pits that he fell to, the lows that he, he ended up sinking to, you know, everything that he went through psychologically, emotionally, I think that was that resentment of celebrity. I think that was part of it, it seemed like, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, if, you know, one of the things when, when people are, feeling depressed or whatever, one of the messages that, that people try to get through them is like, think of all the people that love you. Right. Right. And when, when that, when that is received as like a negative, you know, think about how damaging that is and how hard it is to recover and how hard it is to get your brain in a, in a good place when the idea that people love you is the damaging part because you can't quite you know, not, not, not that you can't conceive that they would love you, but that's not what you want. But the things that you do make it happen. It's a very strange, you know, very, very tough thing to, to deal with is why he, I, I agree, is part of why he, he never, 
he never was able to figure it out. That plus like fucking heroin is, is not yeah. an easy drug to kick. You know, it made, it made it probably easier for him to not recover from it. There were a lot of factors, I think, that led to it. But that's still something that's, I think, even more present in pop culture now is there comes a point where someone reaches a level of celebrity where they can't control their own narrative anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the audience, but even more so certain media outlets control it. And imagine how, imagine how scary that is. Oh my God. Yeah. When you can't, you no longer have the ability to determine sort of what kind of person, uh, people perceive you as, or, you know, what, sort of what the the image you want to put out there, the story you want to put out there, the perception you want to create is no longer in your control. Mm -hmm. And, and once that, once you go down that road, I don't, it's very tough to rein it back in, you know, you can't, unless you just fall off or maybe disappear. And then that becomes another part of the story, (laughs) you know, because the only thing that'll save you maybe if someone falls from grace is like, we're talking about the Will Smith thing is like a redemption story. People love that, you know? I I think the album while most of their music, and I think you could argue that every album after this one would be difficult for you to pinpoint when it came out in that it is almost genre free and that it is straight ahead rock. And it doesn't sound like nineties or two thousands or anything. They're all just sort of straight ahead rock songs, but this album is, is dated in a way that is positive. I don't, when I say things are dated, I don't usually don't mean that as a negative thing. I, I usually mean it's reflective of the time and right. makes you think about the time. And I think we've talked about before, I think a lot of great art, quote unquote, doesn't age well, you know, because it's a statement about that moment and you have to be able to think about that moment to do it. This album is great because it is dated, I think, or one of the reasons it's great. The songs are obviously great, but it, the fact that it, it makes you remember what music sounded like then and the messaging of things then, I think is part of what makes it so effective and so great. It's a certain nostalgia trip to it. And and it's interesting to hear this and then to see how they evolved or how Dave mm-hmm. Roll evolved because uh, we we're talking about this last time. I mean, they're kind of a perennial American band. Like they're, they're sort of, they've not really gone through a lot of ebbs and flows as far as the popularity or as far as the you know the general consensus on them, I mean, they're generally well liked. Mm-hmm. I think there's probably some parts of the maybe the indie rock world or I don't know some of the more underground styles that probably look at them as like mainstream rock now, which is ironic. But they're generally a well liked band. Dave Grohl has become this like sort of iconic figure that shows mm-hmm. up anywhere. He can show up with Tenacious D, and he does have a sense of humor about himself, which I think that's why people like him so much beyond the music. So. It's interesting to hear this because this was just the very beginning of, of, of a pretty long, like, impressive career that they've had. Yeah, I can't think of anybody that, did, like, I've heard that dislikes them. I actually think that as they went on, I thought their albums got a little boring, I think, toward toward where we are now. I was a lot less, I would hear the songs, and I'd be like, ah, it's just a Foo Fighter song or whatever. But, but live, they always crushed it. And I, I think they were always, like, they always lived up to... I thought they always lived up to their billing live and, you know, uh, they always seemed, and I mean this in the, the best possible way, incredibly harmless, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> in, incredibly like, like meant no ill will toward anyone. And we're just out to, to have fun. And, and I think that Taylor Hawkins was a, 
both Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins were a huge part of that because of who they were and their images. And I thought that the reason there was part of such a, such an outpouring of support and sadness when he passed away was because that, that image from those two people were real and everyone perceived it as real, even the people that were close to them. And there's something to be said for, I think whether the people are, you know, think about it consciously or not, people just want to see that the, these big rock bands, even if they hit this like high, high celebrity status, that they just enjoy what they're doing. And when you watch Dave Grohl, when you watch Taylor Hawkins, there's certain musicians, like there's that infectious energy and that they're just having fun and not taking themselves that seriously. I think that's something that people actually respond to because there's not a lot of bands that, or even artists that put out that energy. Like there's a lot of artists out there taking themselves very seriously. Yep. Yep. And it's like <laughs> everything is like so monumental and dramatic. And there's, I don't know, people come to music first and foremost for escape. They want to have fun. And that's what I think Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins exude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We're fun and, and still did. So rest in peace, Taylor Hawkins, even though he didn't fucking play on this album. We'll do another fine. one. We'll do, we'll do, we'll another. do one down we'll the do road. Another. But yeah, R.I.P. R.I.P. Uh, our listener album, as I mentioned, is Worm Food from Jamaican Queens, which came out in 2013 and came from Apple Podcast user DJud32. Give it to us. Yeah, Jamaican Queens, Worm Food. Never heard of this band. Another uh, interesting discovery, interesting listener pick. I enjoyed this record. It sort of made me think at moments of a few other bands, like maybe MGMT, and there's sort of a certain sound. It's sort of somewhere between that indie rock, electro pop sound that I think has become mm-hmm. you know pretty widespread in the last decade. But I enjoyed this. Give a little backdrop on Jamaican Queens. They were formed by producer Adam Presley and the singer Ryan Spencer in Detroit in 2011. So they haven't been around that long. Uh, the duo had previously played together in a band called Prussia. And they eventually, once they formed, expanded into a trio and added drummer Ryan Clancy. Although I think their music is definitely producer kind of beat driven. It, you don't always get the picture of like a band working unit, you know. But there's elements of that, but it's definitely producer driven, track driven. I agree. I agree. The group name was inspired by Ryan Spencer's love of dancehall music. I don't really hear a lot of that influence within the music, but that's the namesake came from that. Uh, this is interesting when you hear their influences, or some a few of the influences they've mentioned. They've mentioned David Bowie and Magnetic Fields as being among their strongest influences, which, which would you hear that? And I don't know. Uh, I could hear Bowie. Bowie I a think. little bit. Bowie yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I could hear Bowie, I think. Yeah, for and, sure. And Ryan Spencer is called Morrissey, his biggest lyrical influence, mm. which that I don't hear at all. I don't uh, hear that. Well, maybe in that, we'll, we'll talk about the songs, but maybe in that last song, I think there are sensitive sort of like, uh, I maybe, maybe. Even the back half of the record, maybe you're right, because it goes into a different direction. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting sometimes when you hear artists speak about their influences, where the point of inspiration, where it begins, that's sometimes just a catalyst. And the way an artist filters that influence becomes something totally different yeah. in the end result. That's, I always find that interesting. You know, it's not really, there's some bands that emulate legendary artists and you hear it right away, you know? Mm-hmm. Like a band like the Dead 60s, we right away heard The Clash. They wear it on their sleeve. But other times it's something more intrinsic. 
but it doesn't necessarily manifest in a very obvious way. That that sounds like this band because uh, they seem to filter those influences in a different kind of way, and they feel very contemporary. But just to uh, give a little backdrop, they've only had a few records, and they haven't really released a new one in a number of years, but uh, they're an interesting group because it's actually kind of tough to find a lot about them. There's not that much... Oh, really? That's the most frustrating, right? When you're trying to do the prep and you're like, motherfucker. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there's information on them, but like, I want to see like, what's their touring history? Like what, yeah. you know, I mean, I, lo- I love going down that sort of uh, rabbit hole and figuring out, you know, who did they tour with? I, I, some of those things that you can normally find, I couldn't find, but there's still some interesting write-ups on them, especially regionally in that like sort of Midwest area. But uh, they released their debut single, uh, When You Sleep in 2012. That was followed by the release of this record in March of 2013. Now, they got some solid critical recognition for this. Elle magazine ranked Worm Food number three on its list of the 20 best albums of 2013. They called it the year's best debut record. So there were, I don't think they have like a massive press blitz, but the I think the outlets that recognized them and caught on to it really, really connected to what they were doing. Now, their follow-up record, Downers, which is really their last official release, followed in June of 2015. And their most recent release since then was something that actually came out not that long ago, spring of 2020. It's called Demos and B-Sides 2011 to 21 question mark. So sort of mm. an open-ended thing. Now, here's a weird thing. <laughs> Normally, one of the first things I do is go to a band's website. When you go to their website, there's nothing there. Ah, there it's like go. the domain page is, <laughs> is up. So they have no website. Well, they must have at one time. Hmm. So, And they have a Bandcamp page, so that's up. Okay. I think Wild Pink actually uses their Bandcamp page as their website. Yeah, that's become more and more common. But it sounds like these guys had a site. I don't want to read too much into that. But but again, you have to kind of really search around to find more information about this band. But they, in some sense, because they have had some national recognition, I'm a little surprised they haven't had bigger success because their sound is pretty accessible. Um, I fucking loved it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a really just, it's a fun listen. And here's what I love. Like, man, brevity is an art form. Like, this record is constructed into two pieces, kind of. The first four tracks Mm -hmm. that are a little more upbeat, there's a little more energetic. Then the title track is an interlude midway through. And the back half of the record is quieter and more introspective. So that's a really nice construction. It runs about 35 minutes. But just do a few highlights you know, water kind of kicks the record off in a really cool way. Kind of gives you a sense of the, what this band is about. Sort of this lo-fi, kind of synth, heavy beat-driven sound, which I love. I always, anything that goes into that space usually pulls me in. You know, it's the vocals are kind of very much in the quintessential kind of indie rock style. Mm-hmm. Like I can, his voice reminds me of some other bands we've discussed. I can't specifically think, but you know, he there's a certain indie rock singing style that is appealing. But he reminds it's almost, me almost. It's almost like they're acting like they're not totally trying, and they're right. s- sort of being silly, but they're not like they're singing in a 
voice. I, it is hard to describe, but I, I understand exactly what you're trying to say. And I thought, I actually think uh, if it comes from anywhere, I would say that the influence, the, the godfathers of that would be like Flaming Lips and Ween. And I can see a, a parallel here, with this, especially with Flaming Lips. With this yeah, yes, for absolutely, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Just sort of like this, not kidding, but not serious, and sort of like uh, that they're almost performing, they're almost singing in a cartoon, like singing in a in a an animated character's voice on <laughs> in some level. Yeah, it's like one step away from being caricature, but not quite. Correct. Doesn't go yeah. all the way there. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and Ween in particular, uh, you know, they. Aaron Freeman, I mean, as a singer, he'll just totally change his voice depending on the song. He, he sometimes just does, like, full-on vocal characters. Wayne Coyne is a little closer to this where, mm-hmm. yeah, there is something sort of like, uh, I guess cartoonish at times the way he sings, but there's other times where it's very vulnerable and heartfelt, and that's kind of yeah. the same here uh, with Ryan Spencer. But, you know, the, this song is interesting, Water, lyrically, because it seems to be about a, break, a breakup song wherein the singer understands exactly how his own attitude mm-hmm. in the relationship yep. <laughs> led to the breakup. Normally a breakup song doesn't take that perspective or doesn't come at you from that angle. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, I don't even need the things she sends. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to spend time <laughs> with her friends. I don't want to do things for her. I mean, that's pretty cruel. So on yeah. the one hand, he's lamenting the fact that it's sort of a breakup. There's a sadness. And on the other hand, he's kind of ripping himself or being honest about how heartless he was. That's not your run-of-the-mill breakup. So I think that's partly lyrically what pulled me in. Like, you don't normally hear this type of song written from that standpoint. And honestly, it's true. Like, sometimes you're in a relationship where you're, like, hoping the other person does something bad enough for you to break up with them for (laughs) because you – or you start treating them worse, but you don't have the heart to really, like, break it off or, like, you're like, "Ah, maybe she'll cheat on me. You know, that's what what you just said. It sounds like what he's chronicling in this song. Yes. Where you're almost trying to tee it up, just hoping they'll hit it off the tee. Well, 100%. Yes, absolutely. Like where you just act just mean enough to where you're not like, you're not being abusive, but you aren't being helpful. And you just want to, because it's so hard to have that conversation, especially when you're young, you know, where you don't like being direct, where like, where there's this, this, there's this problem in the logic where you are, you don't want to hurt their feelings, but you're okay repeatedly hurting their feelings by being an asshole. Like and in a passive kind of way. Yes, yeah, in a yeah. passive aggressive way, which is worse. It way yeah, much worse. worse than, much worse. Yeah, 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 for sure. And the fact that the lead song take like talks about that is mm-hmm. interesting to me. It's kind of of a courageous move because, in a way, by writing a song like this, you're not necessarily representing yourself or he's not necessarily representing himself as the most virtuous person. No, yeah. no, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, right out of the gate, but that takes a certain level of courage. Uh, you know, I really like, I know you're a big fan of this too, the sort of group vocal quality on some oh, of these yeah. songs, like yep. on Can't Say No to Annie. You hear that yep. element? I think that song is a great example of why I think their song sound is so appealing, why I'm almost surprised that they haven't had a little more commercial success, because it's that perfect hybrid between sort of 
electro pop and the indie rock sensibility. A band I kept thinking of was MGMT. Yep. Um, I see a lot of parallels, even sonically, some of the things they do. And then, you know, one other highlight, because we mentioned the record's kind of split in two. Oh, hold on, on Can't yeah. Say No to Annie, I just, because it was on my list too. That was a moment in the record where I imagined them playing live and the chorus almost being rev- like being like a revival-ish right. because the chorus starts <laughs> off with no music, you know, where the, the instruments drop away. And you can just imagine the clapping all at once as the, the entire, you know, the crowd sings the beginning of the chorus and then it comes back into the chorus. I thought, I think that's like a brilliant song. I think that's an awesome song. That's definitely a standout. And it's interesting because at times I couldn't really picture them as a band on stage, but then there's, like you said, there's moments like that mm-hmm. where you can see exactly how this would work live yep. and how you would engage the audience. So I'd yep. be curious, uh, you know, I wonder if they've toured much. I imagine they have probably in promoting their records, but they'd probably be a fun band to see live. Yeah, I think so. And it's interesting how they split it. So the title track is this sort of interlude. Mm-hmm. And then Wellfleet outro sort of starts the second half of the record. It's kind of more mm-hmm. moody, sparse, kind of spacious sound. The vocals are a little more understated. And uh, it doesn't take too long. You know, it's 35, 36 minutes long. But just a very enjoyable listen. I just like the way the, the album's constructed. So this is definitely an, another great uh, listener pick. Yeah, there were a couple other songs that hit for me. I thought Shark Teeth... a made me think of Brian Eno a little bit I think that there's certainly like you know as a sort of a godfather of the the movement that you're talking about you know the MGMTs and LCD sound systems of the world but like I thought it you could hear it in there and I there's a, a thing about that song where it has a way of feeling like it is starts to unravel and slip out of control and it gets reeled back in a few different times. And it's a hard thing to describe out loud, but maybe if you hear that and then listen to it, you will hear it. And I actually think the best track on the album is the last track, Caitlin. Yeah. I've begun to think of sex the way I do strong strong closer and it runs long it's the only song that really runs long if i'm yeah it's like six minutes i think but i think it's the the one song in the album that i think real lyrically is particularly effective and ends with you know you had mentioned in foo fighters a line repeating but the line i'm sorry about the earth around you caving in is a you know feels like a a very stock uh sad you know, rock music line, but I, I think it's particularly effective. And the song is a, like a great one is a, a powerhouse. And I think the fact that the album's only 35 minutes long, sometimes when a long album, you don't even, you don't hear the songs in the back end as much as you hear the songs in the, the front end, if you're listening to it, because if you only have 20 minutes, you hear the first four songs and all that sort of thing. But the fact that the album's only 35 minutes allows you to get to this song, you know, without being exhausted by the rest of the record. And I, it's sort of like a payoff when you get to it, I think. Yeah. And I, that's a great point. I mean, I, I'll just say this past and present. 
there there are certainly exceptions. Now I can think of one. There's you know, for example, like Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life. That's just a masterpiece, sprawling masterpiece. There are records like that, mm-hmm. but for the most part, I'm always a fan of being concise because I think what tends to happen is, you know, a lot of bands will over-record for a record, mm-hmm. and then you have your bread and butter songs, the cornerstone songs. But then there's always this deliberation of how many tunes go on, what songs do you cut. And I think the mistake that gets made sometimes is, and we've we've talked about this even with records that we really like, like towards the end, it feels like there's filler. Yeah. Uh, or just a song or two that drags. And it's like, I'm always thinking to myself, why did you put that on there? Yeah. Uh, but I've even done that with my own records. I'm, I'm just, I think brevity, like make every, un, every song mean something. Yeah. And I'd rather... I'd rather the record run 35 minutes, and this is really eight full songs. I mean, it's an interlude in between, so this is really yep. eight full songs. Perfect example record we discussed early on, and I think it's one of Prince's best, Dirty Mind. Eight songs, 30 minutes. I mean, these records are like a step away from an EP, and I love EPs, you know? I, I just, I wonder what that instinct is. I think it's partly a byproduct of when you're in the studio sometimes, you become so attached to certain songs yeah. that if you could step away from it, you would know, you know, we should probably leave this one off or maybe it's an outtakes release or something. Well, because at one point you at least had the length of vinyl as a right. limit as to how long you could make a record. And then if you were going to make it longer than that, you would have to make it a double record, which from a cost standpoint would increase it. But I think that the, 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 the ability of the, the the way that people consume music now, the, the cost is only the cost of time that you're in the studio. Right. So while, while that's probably decreased for a lot of different artists because they can do things themselves and they can record things at home, there is no limit to the, the length of your album. Your album could be 100 minutes if you want it to be 100. It could be 200 minutes. There's whatever you want to call the album it does. So it takes even more self-control in the internet era, I think to make an album compact because that self-editing becomes true self-editing where at one point there was a limit as to how much you could actually put on an album. Right. Which was actually gave you good parameters Yep, to put your best foot forward. Sure. It's ironic that now that you do sometimes see people make these sprawling records because they just, that's a slippery slope because you just have the space. It's the same with CDs. Yeah. People would put an hour's worth of music on but ironically, in this day and age, that's not how people listen. So you might actually be burying your material yep. by doing it that way. So I just, I, I love a record like this. It just, it, you're right. By the time you get to that long, last song, it's a little longer. You, you're not fatigued. Sometimes you're ear fatigued if, if it's, the record's already been running for like 50 some minutes, you know? Yep. yep. So yeah, this is a really cool record. And I'm curious if uh, they're going to do another full release. They had this demos B-Sides release uh, in 2020, so... That might be uh, maybe the predecessor to something more. Um, but yeah, just a cool, interesting band. Another another great pick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely great pick. I, I liked it a lot. I was, um, I was, <laughs> you see the name of the band, Jamaican Queens, and you're like, well, what is, I didn't expect this. No, you know, I neither expected did I. <laughs> something that sounded perhaps Jamaican. Uh, and this is, this and then, and then you hear that the namesake is because the singer, Ryan Spencer, loves dance hall music. So I was expecting like a, like a reggae kind of thing, and it's nothing has nothing nope. to do. Uh, no, nope. yeah, it's got nothing to do with it musically, but still, still a, a really enjoyable listen. Well, next week we'll be back with another listener pick and a Mootloo pick of next week, and uh, we thank you for listening. For now, that's all we got. Stay free, my goose. Stay free.